forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, Doc, welcome back for episode seven of the podcast. Yeah, man, it's good to be back. Uh, I'm still on the road from the last podcast we did. Uh, This time we're on the European tour, I guess is what I'd call it. Uh, Met up in Amsterdam uh, with my business partner and we try to meet quarterly. This time it was in Amsterdam versus back in the US. And that was great. Uh, John and I are doing some great work together and uh, that was fantastic. And now I find myself in the Canary Islands. So we decided to take a few weeks. I've never been here. And a big shout out to the Canary Islands. What a place. It reminds me of Hawaii a lot, uh, like uh, the island of Kauai. Like real mountainous. uh, Yeah, beautiful. Just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking a little bit of a break from exploring the Canary Islands to uh, to talk with our listeners today about a pretty important topic, and that's the topic of sleep. I'm going to start off by kind of throwing you a middle bit of a curveball because okay. I think most of us think we know what sleep is. It's pretty obvious, but maybe it's not as obvious as we think. So I was reading an article by a Harvard uh, neurobiologist, one of the leading researchers in the, the field of sleep. And he was asked, what is sleep and why do we do it? And here's exactly what he said. Quote, you'd think I'd have an answer for that, right? I've been doing this for a while and I can't answer that question. Yes. <laughs> and I agree completely with him. I have been immersed in studying sleep uh, for the last 10 years at least, if not 15, uh, but in relation to peak performance and its importance in that. And I would say the same thing is we really do not know why we sleep. There's different theories about that, but the actual reason why we do you know, and how it all works. We understand some of the neurochemistry that goes into that. We understand the EEG technology that goes into that. But why it's happening is is really an interesting thing. And I think we're just scratching the surface with some of the things we are finding. So one of the things that emerges when you read the literature, and I'm a lay person, you know, and I've learned so much from you over the last 12 years, but it makes me more curious. So I go, you know, use the Google machine or whatever and, and read articles about this. But apparently what they say is that before the 1950s or up into through the 1950s, early 60s, scientists basically understood sleep as rest that it was something like going and parking the tractor in the in the barn at the end of a day's work and it sort of cools off rests so you can use it again tomorrow but researchers in the 60s and 70s when they started having the capacity to do EEG and and monitor what the brain and the body is doing electronically 
began to discover that it's not exactly like a tractor sitting in the barn overnight, is it? Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, if we go way back, you think some of the original people thought sleep was just more something that we did as a protective mechanism because we're not nighttime creatures. And so uh, we're not going to really do a lot of good hunting and gathering crops in the evening. And there's predators out. So, you know, we sleep to protect ourselves. And then some people went on to think, you know, or talk about, well, you know, sleep is a time that we could conserve energy. You know, we're using energy all day long. There's only so much food. You know, let's save some of that food by sleeping. Really, more recently, it's been the component of sleep has this very significant dance with our recovery system, with our immune system, with, well, as we've talked about all the systems in the body, every system needs this parasympathetic downshift in order to really function at its fullest level. And sleep allows for that to happen. But there's also, as we study it more, there's upshifting that goes on in sleep that's even more intense than when we're awake. So I, I say this phrase often to people, sleep is just a very poor word for, to describe what we're doing for eight hours at night. It'd be like me saying to you, what did you do today? And you said, I was awake. Or um, you're not really giving us a breakdown of all the things that happen when we sleep. Right, because a lot happens. In, in fact, yeah. it's, it's less of a, of a shutting down and more of a shifting of focus. So instead of the body sort of stopping, it, it shifts its focus to other processes. I, I was telling you this morning, because we were texting each other with you in the Canary Islands yeah. and me here on the frozen shores of the Great Lakes. And, uh, <laughs> and I, was, I was explaining this to my wife last night because I knew that we were going to record this episode. And I've learned so much from you over the last 12 years that I said, uh, I was trying to explain it to her. And, and, and an analogy kind of came to me. And I want to hear whether this works. Like, what do you, do you think this works? So it's like if I was going to say that all that matters is what I do when I'm in public, away from my house, at work. And then at the end of the day, I come home and I just sort of park myself at home and then go back out yeah. the next day. And what happens at home doesn't really matter. It's just downtime. But actually, I have a lot to do at home before I leave the next day. I mean, I have to eat. I have to wash my clothes. I have to pay my bills. I have to take care of my kids. I have to right? Let my dog out to go pee. I got to do 57 things. And if I don't do those things at home, I can't sort of go out the next day and work. I'll follow my, my life in public. My life at work will fall apart pretty quickly if I'm not keeping up with all of those responsibilities when I'm not at work. And so the analogy would be that what we do while we're awake in the conscious world is like what we're doing in public and at work. But boy, when we go home at night, We've got a lot of things that we have to take care of so we can go out the next day, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a great way to describe it. And actually, if you start to think about the importance or the weight that we put on these things, you know, we, we have our jobs, we have our public faces that we put on, but 
it's really, you know, who are we at home? Where, you know, our, a couple episodes ago, we talked about being present. Uh, sleep is about the most present <laughs> that you're going to get because all of a sudden the, the brain and the body says, okay, we've been, you know, worrying about the money markets. We've been building these widgets. Uh, we've been hitting the little white ball. And um, now it's time to focus on yourself because in order for you to be able to actually perform at your potential, it all is going to come back to what's going on when you're at home. When are you sleeping as we're using the analogy of being, being home? What are you doing with those do daily chores at home? And in the case of sleep, what are you doing with your sleep hygiene to get the most of yourself available for this very, very crucial time of recovery. And actually, we'll get into problem solving that happens during this time. Let's talk about what some of those things that have to happen while we're sleeping, because our body doesn't sort of stop. It just shifts to these other processes. What are some of those processes? I mean, some of them are neurological, some of them are physical. Some of them are in our endocrine system, uh, our muscle tissues. I mean, there's all these things that our body has to sort of take care of during the sleep phase, right? Yeah. And I think a good place to start for our listeners is looking at, let's take a quantity of sleep. We'll, we'll spend some time talking about what's the appropriate quantity of sleep. But just for the sake of our discussion, let's start with eight hours, okay? We definitely know that, you know, below six, you're going to run into all kinds of physiological disorders, even the chance of premature death increases by 13%. We, we know that there's issues with too little sleep. Uh, where that sweet spot is, we'll get into more detail, but let's say it's eight hours. We're going to start with eight hours, okay? If I take an eight hours uh, span of sleep, uh, which I'm not going to be sleeping that whole time, there's a period of time that it takes me to get to sleep. And there's going to be awakenings that we'll talk about in a little bit. But we have this eight-hour span of time. The first, the best way to look at this is the first four hours of sleep is going to be primarily 90% of what's going on, maybe even up to 95% of what's going on is body recovery. Okay, so it's a, it's a sequential process. It's body recovery for the first four hours. And then the next four hours is brain recovery. Okay. So, you know, why does it work in that sequential pattern? Now, there is some, will you move into recovering the brain a little bit during the first four hours? You will, but that won't be the primary focus. Will you move into recovering the body some the second four hours? You will, but that's not the primary focus. It's the brain in the second four hours and the body in the first four. Well, why did we do that? Well, there's a certain way the, the brain and the body is figuring out what do I need the most to be able to function tomorrow? So it kind of has to make some choices. If, you know, 100,000 years, years ago, I was running from a bear and I slipped into a cave, my brain and body says, well, what do I need to be able to run more from the, the bear? And so what it does is it focuses primarily on deep sleep and the restoration of the body, development of different hormones, primary production of testosterone, HGH is happening during this state. 
And all those bodily systems, the 14, the 11, whatever we decide, that we hold within our body get restored primarily during this first four hours of sleep. That includes things like clearing toxins in our muscle tissues or body tissues. It it involves regeneration of those tissues where they've been damaged, correct? It involves, right? I mean, digestion of food and the storing of energy, right? So like you say, there's almost like a hierarchy of needs. So when I wake up, my body can at least physically get back up again, right? And we all felt that, you know, we have a hard day maybe of physical activity. And, you know, your muscles are tired. You're, you know, you eat a meal, you lay down, you have to digest the food, your muscles have to uh, heal, right? So talk a little bit about those things, the clearing of the toxins, muscle regeneration, uh, digestion, right? These, these are essential things. And so your body's actually like physically really busy during that first four hours. Yeah, uh, you need to, Uh, If we go back to previous episodes where we talked about the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic is when the nervous system is running really fast, requiring a lot of energy to function, and parasympathetic is a slowing down. Well, during the sleep cycle, it's the closest we're going to get to the lowest level of parasympathetic apart from death, okay, is that you're you're really going to slow down the system because it has to make up for all the work that you've been doing in each one of these systems, cardiovascular system, respiratory system, your immune system, your endocrine system. And so it has to downshift pretty significantly in order for these guys to to really start to restore themselves and get into that parasympathetic state. And what's going on here a lot is in that sympathetic state, we, we experience a lot of inflammation, inflammatory process. And these different toxins that come into our body because we're working it so hard. And this gives the body an opportunity to start to clear these things out and start to recover and heal itself. But it's not like it just turns itself off. It's not like a light switch, you know, where I'm now off. Not at all. It's just a redirection of focus to get out of these sympathetic, stressful things and address, uh, like we talked about earlier, uh, allostasis, the balancing out of what happened during the day with what we're going to do at night. And if those don't equal out, then we start to create some really poor formulas that we know that when the sleep isn't appropriate, every one of these systems have a tendency to experience a greater chance of a disease process. I mean, the, the Sleep deprivation is tied to almost every disease that we know as far as either making it worse or in some, some cases actually causing it to happen. You know, you've warned in the past about analogies of the body to a machine, right? So we say we can't always compare the body to a car or, a, or an airplane or a computer, right? It's, it's, it's much more complex than that because obviously it's an organic living thing. But one of the analogies that people will use for, for sleep sometimes is like I put my phone in the charger at night and my body has to recharge. But actually, it's, it's more active than that is what you're saying. I mean, it's not so much recharging as it's rebuilding. Yeah, it's liter- literally rebuilding, uh, repairing, 
broken tissues, cl- yeah, clearing all these toxins, yeah, so forth. Yes, and uh, all this stress that's been on the system, if it doesn't address that, that's just going to build up. And we have these different mechanisms in our body that are going to force us to sleep because we have to recover. If we don't, the body will break down. Uh, if we deprive sleep for more than seven days, we'll start to go psychotic, so lose our cognitive functioning. By day 13 or 14, we're likely to die because these systems have to balance out or you're going to, in a sense, break them because they don't have that equal balance of recovery. Okay, if we think about food, water, and sleep, right? You can go, and you've made this point before, you can, somebody can go, you know, weeks, 40 days without food. They can go maybe a week without water, maybe, depending on the situation. But your body won't let you even go really that long without sleep. It's actually, it's just as necessary as food and water. And in fact, in some ways more imperative. So I don't, I was trying to figure out how long, like what the, what the world record for sleep deprivation was. And I I saw one thing that said 11 days, but I don't even know how you would, you know, how did they, how did they measure that? Like that the guy who died from sleep deprivation called Guinness the next day or something, you know, right. (laughs) But you mean like to your point, you know, clearly you get out there. And, And so one of the things I looked at was the Navy SEALs because they do this hell week where they go, you know, without sleep for a certain number of days yeah. while they're at the same time doing all this intense physical stuff to kind of break down their body tissues. And hell we class five days and they don't go a hundred percent without sleep. Like it they get little like 10 minute and 15 and 20 minute increments there. But even by the end of the fifth day, when you listen to the you know, the accounts of these these Navy SEALs that survived it, they're having intense hallucinations and and crazy stuff. And these guys are, you know, the fittest guys on the planet, right? Yeah. And, you know, we know when we get past about 16 hours of not having sleep, that it's close to point, if you were to measure like somebody being intoxicated, uh, close to about 0.05 level of alcohol intoxication occurs once you get over 16 hours. We know that, a, you know, a huge predictor of motor vehicle accidents is related to sleep deprivation. Probably because what's going to happen is the body, even though you're trying to stay awake, it has these built-in mechanisms that just force you to sleep. That's why it's very hard to actually measure this. I was reading an article about that. You know, to your point, they said like, okay, hunger, we, we have, right? So our body tells us that we're hungry. Right. So the, the autonomic nervous system gets these signals that says it's time to eat. But we can ignore that. Right. Because either they, there's no food available or, you know, through force of will or whatever, we can ignore our hunger. And we could, to some degree, ignore our thirst. Body could tell you you're really thirsty. And if there's no water or if you, you know, choose not to take any or for whatever reason. But it said sleep, the body will not let you not sleep. So, right, it'll start going to sleep on its own. It'll just start shutting down. And it talked about like micro sleep where people will fall into these little one second, two second, three second uh, things where they drop into a sleep state. And, you know, all of us can think about you're driving down the road, like you say, late at night and you start like your head starts bobbing or you're sitting in a 
you know, class or a meeting or a lecture in the afternoon and your head just starts, yeah. you know, bobbing in and out. Yeah, I mean, we know that a human is the only mammal on the planet that will actually purposely delay its sleep. Now, that's a, that's a pretty significant thing. Think about that. Compared to all the creatures, all the creatures on this planet, we're the only ones that make a conscious choice to delay our sleep. For what? Right? Is it because we're in the chase from the bear? No. We're consciously delaying this natural process that every creature on the planet does with a certain rhythm and consistency over time. We're delaying that for Netflix, for Facebook, for, for what? You know, to, oh, I need to get a little bit more work done so that I can climb the ladder, but we don't realize that actually if I would sleep more, I'm better at problem solving and I'm going to be more successful the more I sleep. If you would look at the last maybe 10 texts that I've sent out to athletes that I work with after they've had a big game, win or lose, probably within the first sentence, it will say, number one thing, get some sleep. Get sleep. And they know that from Doc, that he's going to say, it's either going to say sleep or breathe, right? It's not going to be super complex. These are free things now. Okay. This isn't, you know, sign up for 1999, you know, for three things and you get this. It's free. Sleep is free. Breathing is free. Okay. And it can actually have some of the, not some of, it will have the greatest impact on our life. But we have built into us talking about these, you know, micro sleeps is because we might make the choice to consciously not sleep, our body knows better. Uh, than maybe our conscious side. We've talked about that before, the difference between the conscious and the unconscious. And so we have these unconscious things that are built in that force that to happen to us. And the first one has to do with sleep drive. And the moment we wake up, we start releasing a chemical called adenosine. Adenosine. And this adenosine is basically going to fill up, let's imagine, a container. Okay that at a certain point that there's enough adenosine in that container, you will sleep. It's impossible not to sleep. Okay. It's like a, it's more powerful than giving you some sedation. Okay. Adenosine will at a certain volume level cause you to sleep. So the moment we wake up, we start for the sleep drive component. And there's another component called circadian rhythm, but sleep drive is all about adenosine release. And so it's releasing, and it's only going to go a certain period of time that eventually you fill, and it's expecting you to go to sleep. Well, one of the things that we've discovered over time is there is a chemical that will block our adenosine receptors, uh, and that chemical is wonderful caffeine, okay? And uh, the caffeine will block these releases of the adenosine, which would eventually cause us to sleep, and will the caffeine will keep us awake because it's blocking the adenosine receptors. The problem is, is it doesn't stop the adenosine production. 
what's going on there is a buildup is happening. Okay. Uh, the, the backlog of adenosine is building up. And so when mm. that caffeine starts to wear off, you know, you're driving down I-75 and it's three in the morning and you've chugged your three Red Bulls and you're like, I can do this whole trip to Florida in one shot, right? And no matter what you try to do, you're falling asleep. Well, why is that? Because you can only hold back the adenosine so long before it eventually, it will force you to sleep no matter what you're doing. It's just thrown a dam in the river, right? And now there's this giant reservoir of pressure building up behind that dam. Yes, which people refer to as sleep pressure, right? Is that you, you can't stop it. Now, the adenosine is a backup system to what should be going on is your circadian rhythm. So your circadian rhythm should be making you go to sleep just like it does every other creature on the planet right? But somewhere along the lines in the way that we were made, this backup system of adenosine kind of was built as a way to deal with us foolish people that are going to make conscious choices to not sleep. But the real way we should be sleeping is through our circadian rhythm. Because it's not exactly tied to the daylight-dark schedule, but it's closely related to it, right? And when you were saying all the other animals on the planet have a sense of the sun comes up, the sun goes down, I guess unless they're nocturnal creatures, right? But there is this natural sort of cycle. And as creatures, mammals, like you say, we're naturally sort of tied into that cycle. So on a 24-hour period or 12-hour period, we're sort of up and down and up and down, right? And it has a lot to do with how daylight and particularly certain wavelengths of daylight, like blue light, um, hits our, hits our yep. the photoreceptors in our eyes, which triggers certain kinds of hormone releases and everything else, makes us feel more alert. Then when that gets suppressed, right, then you start to get on this rhythm. But of course, what happened is, and we've talked about this before, the invention of technologies like electric light and everything else has allowed us to sort of beat or cheat the circadian daylight dark rhythm. And so part of it is, is getting that yep. tuned in. But you're, I know that when I first met you, you and I got up this morning, used my blue light because you're very, very, uh, yes. you know, clear on getting that back and that there are certain technologies that, that help or inhibit us being on our circadian rhythm. Yeah. And that's a, a good place for us to start about how do we even optimize this thing or, or deal with this. So in order to understand the uh, circadian rhythm, you have to understand two hormones in the body, two crucial ones. Uh, one is called cortisol, and the other is called melatonin. Okay. Now, us as daytime creatures, humans, we use the sun to set the release of these chemicals. It, there's something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, that's near your retina that assesses light as it's coming in and it uses that assessment of light to then decide how to release cortisol, which is adrenaline, and then also when to suppress adrenaline and when to release more melatonin. So melatonin kind of hates the light and, and cortisol, adrenaline, loves the light and it especially loves blue light. And uh, the time that we get the most of that blue light 
It's typically, if you were watching the sunrise, uh, zero to 30 degrees uh, in the sky. That period is just about perfect for getting the right amount of blue light in the light spectrum that's going to trigger the release of cortisol. And so if the, our listeners just, just kind of imagine this for a second. Imagine a curve, a sine wave, okay? And the height of this curve uh, of cortisol release, this is a sine wave of cortisol, cortisol release, is going to be right around 7, 8 in the morning where you're going to release about 6 to 8 units of cortisol. That's a lot of adrenaline. Like, have you ever thought about like, well, why do I all of a sudden wake up? <laughs> you know, why don't I just keep sleeping, right? But there's a mechanism that's going to wake you up and that is this release of cortisol, this adrenaline, this surge of adrenaline pulls the system together and we should have about six to eight units. Now, interestingly enough, by noon, we're down to right around two and a half units of cortisol. So we've really significantly decreased. And that burst in the morning should carry us through the day. By the time the sun is setting, we're about one and a half units. And then by the time the sun is fully down and we're sleeping, we should be less than one unit of cortisol. So if you can imagine this curve, and then the next day it's going to rise, start rising overnight and get up to six to eight units. Okay. You can see that in your mind. Now, what you have to understand is that melatonin and cortisol do this dance with each other, that whatever cortisol is doing, melatonin, which makes you sleep at night. Now, you can buy melatonin, synthetic melatonin, but we make melatonin, okay? We, we make that in our bodies. And whenever cortisol is high, melatonin will always be at its lowest level. And it always takes cues from cortisol. Whatever cortisol says that it's going to do, melatonin's going to fall in line and do the opposite. So in the morning, we get the burst. What's melatonin going to be? It's going to be very, very low. As the day progresses and cortisol comes down, melatonin goes up and it keeps increasing. The sun sets and it even gets at a higher increase. And then right around midnight, we are going to have as a, a creature that lives during the day, we're going to have the highest release of melatonin, which is really going to be one of the most major contributors to the quality of our sleep cycle is that midnight release of melatonin. But what happens if, like you say, your cortisol uh, level uh, starts declining and you get to go sort of sunset? But then because of our lifestyles, because of electronic light, electronics, all the things that we do, as the sun is setting, man, we, we light it up. So whether that's, you know, social life, activity, work, entertainment, a thousand things that we do, we're burning all of this light. And some of those electronic devices like LED screens and all that emit that blue light frequency. So what we're doing is then jacking up and what, releasing more cortisol into our system as the sun goes down? Yes. And you're bringing up, uh, I did about a six to seven year project with the MBA. And uh, we studied over 400 samples of uh, hormones in MBA athletes, looking at cortisol release, looking at testosterone, uh, DHEA, a variety of other things. And uh, 
very interesting thing that we observed is at the beginning of the season, before they start on their crazy schedules that these athletes do, um, their testosterone levels would look very normal and their sleep cycles would look very normal. But as you started to have them travel and uh, mix up their sleep cycle and also do something else, which is play games at seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night under lights that have to be so bright that you can do HD image, right? So this isn't just like a light, low level light. These are really high powered, uh, what we would measure lumens of light on these athletes at a crucial time when they should be making melatonin, even if they're not playing, they're producing a ton of cortisol because of the lights and now add in a stressful activity that you're going to do that these athletes then have a very difficult time making the melatonin. And so as we track these athletes, we would see their, their testosterone levels go from the, that of a 21, 22-year-old that by the end of the season, they would look like that of a 50-year-old. So we literally anti, the anti-aging because of sleep deprivation. You know, when you're starting to make those choices, well, I'm just going to get five hours of sleep tonight. Start to think about what the accumulation of those are going to do to your system. In the NBA uh, situation, we could see it over a compressed period of time. And we know that because we're creating these events that are producing a huge amount of cortisol late in the day, that these guys would go home and it would be hard for them to sleep at night. Some of them rewatch the game. They're not falling asleep till you know four or five in the morning because of all the cortisol release. And eventually, when it comes down, now they will make some melatonin, but it creates quite a chaotic and disruptive system within the whole body and especially the hormones. You know, I remember about a dozen years ago when we first started working together, you were working with an NBA team and I would come down and visit you at that team and you actually changed the lighting in the player's locker room and the player's area, right? And I put it on a timer to get them more on a circadian schedule, didn't you? Yeah, look at you. You remember that. Okay, that has advanced now where we have that at uh, multiple sports teams multiple NFL teams, uh, NBA, where uh, what we refer to this as biometric lighting, biometric lighting. And that's lighting that is going to work with your circadian rhythm. So I want our listeners to think about this for a while. Just think about this for a minute. I mean, is the light that you're sitting in, in the room that you're in, is not going to change. It's going to stay the same color spectrum all day long. But what your brain is trying to analyze for its very intricate release of cortisol and melatonin and the suprachiasmatic nucleus and how it's perceiving blue light is needing the changing color spectrum of the sun. But we don't get that in most of the environments we're in. So my concern was in some of these sports teams especially, they pretty much live inside all the time. And while we couldn't control what was going on during the games, we did control what was going on in the locker rooms where we um, would actually set the lights to produce different color spectrum based on 
what the sun was doing outside. So in the morning, you'd have more blue light coming through these lights, very high-powered lumen lights. And then as the day progresses, you'd see less blue, more red, orange, things that pr pr promote more melatonin. Now, that's never going to be as good as being outside uh, like our ancestors were all the time, and they used the sun to set these rhythms. But it is an advancement. I have a, a, a good uh, a coach that I've worked with for a long time that has moved to four different teams. And the only t thing he asked for when he leaves is that his lights can go <laughs> with him. And we've moved his biometric lights that are in his office to four different teams uh, and put them in his new office each time because he knows his sleep schedule gets completely messed up during the season. But those lights help keep his brain in rhythm so he can produce some of these uh, hormones in the pattern that he needs to. You know, I think it's got to be clear to the listeners right now just how essential sleep is to us performing at our potential, uh, athletically, neurologically, emotionally, socially, you know, almost every arena in life. And so we're going to talk a lot about sleep in episodes ahead. In fact, we're going to, uh, the next episode is going to be more about sleep, but we're getting near the end of this one. So what I want to do is give you a chance for kind of a last word here uh, for our listeners on what sleep is and how essential and important it is to them. And then we're going to come back in the next episode and talk about the architecture of our sleep and the different phases that happen in there and what happens in each phase. Yeah, as far as the importance of sleep in your life, it is the most important thing that you will do today is sleep. It won't be what you're doing at 2 p.m. It'll be what you're doing at 2 a.m. The problem that needs to get solved during the day is going to happen when you put it into the sleep machine before you go to bed and let it do its thing, which we're going to learn about how it solves problems. But the most important thing that you can do, the best investment that you can make is into sleep. And the first thing I would start with is trying to control how you're using blue light. More blue light in the morning and less blue light at night, whether that's through blue blockers or avoiding uh, tablets, those kind of things. But that's kind of our first kind of nugget of things that we want you to take with you is be very cognizant of the blue light and how it plays into your circadian rhythm and you, how you can be an expert of managing this light. And it'll be the first step to us improving your quality of sleep, which will improve your overall performance. Wow. Thanks, Doc. So stick with us here. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a break. Well, we're not going to take a break. We're going to actually keep on recording, but we'll see you next week. And Doc is going to uh, unpack for us the architecture of our sleep, the different phases, the things that happen during our sleep fa uh, phases and how essential those are to helping us achieve our potential. So thank you, Doc. Awesome. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential 
by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. <laughs>